Almost everyone loves to be amazed. To see something rare or to experience something extraordinary is a, is a universal human longing. So think for a moment with me. When is the last time you, you witnessed something truly spectacular? From sunsets to mountain views, from musical performances to athletic achievements, from, from, from brain power to brute force, human beings love to behold things that leave them simply astonished. In particular, witnessing power on display has always fascinated people. From jet engines to tidal waves to nuclear explosions, we are both drawn to and sometimes rightly terrified of the sheer force of power. So more narrowly then, when is the last time you saw power on display, power that left you in awe? From C.S. Lewis characters to, to Disney and Marvel, for that matter, human beings are often drawn to people or to fictional characters that possess some kind of extraordinary power. In today's passage, we are presented with the fascinating account of a particular man who, who was not a fictional character, but a historical figure, a man who demonstrated extraordinary acts of power, a man who held an entire region of people in Samaria absolutely spellbound. This man was in awe of the power of God. And this man was powerless to resist the superior power of the gospel message. This man was a first century magician named Simon. This power, that is the power of the gospel, not only confronted Simon, it converted the region of Samaria with its extraordinary claims. The power of the gospel on display in our passage is so spectacular. My prayer has been and my prayer is that it will leave us absolutely in awe. Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 8 verses 9 through 25. You'll recall that the evangelist Philip went to Samaria. He's proclaiming the good news. Spirits are being exercised. People are being healed. And so there is tremendous joy in this region. But, verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, 
This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Glorify yourself now, Father, through the power and with the presence of the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' beloved name, amen. So there's a lot going on here, but we can, we can summarize the essence of our passage like this, very simply. The message of the gospel is more important than miracles and more powerful than magic. The message of the gospel is more important than miracles and more powerful than magic. Now, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we can share it, brothers and sisters, with boldness and without fear to any and all who will listen to its message. Now, to press in to our passage this morning, in verses 9 through 13, we're going to look at the fact that Simon believes the word. In verses 14 through 17, the apostles pray for the Spirit. Then Simon tries to buy the Spirit, verses 18 through 24. And finally, the apostles preach the word throughout Samaria in verse 25. So we'll just begin with our first section. When I say that the message of the gospel is more important than miracles, and more powerful than magic. 
My aim is not to denigrate miracles or to deny the power of evil forces. It's quite the opposite. My intention is to say that as incredibly extraordinary and spectacular as miracles are, they pale in comparison to the power of God to save sinners. In Genesis 1, God just merely, just merely speaks the universe into existence. But in Isaiah 52 and verse 10, the prophet says that God put in work when it came to saving sinners. The Lord has bared his holy arm, or he rolled up his sleeves so he could get to work. Before the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 52 and verse 10. Even the most extraordinary miracles are merely pointers to the greatness of God himself and to the goodness of the gospel message. Miracles serve the gospel and not the other way around. Further, as comprehensive and tragically as catastrophic as the influence of evil is in the world, Yet it is true that evil's power to destroy cannot touch the power of the gospel to save and to transform. Do you know that truth this morning? Do you know that if, if genuine faith in Christ lives within you at any level of strength, if there is the presence of saving faith, then you belong to God. And his Holy Spirit lives within you. So, believer in Jesus. Believer with a fragile faith in Jesus. Believer who sometimes doubts Jesus. Know that when Satan attacks you, or through his influence in the world, he, he tries to intimidate you. No matter how much we may try to, he may try to discourage you or he may try to tempt you to doubt God's goodness. Know that this truth remains. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The scriptures are replete with examples, all testifying to the reality that the presence of evil, as pervasive as it is, cowers and bows in the presence of the far superior presence of Almighty God Himself. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they, be when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. To be clear, the magic that Simon practiced in Samaria was not some sleight of hand. He wasn't trying to make his beautiful 
assistant disappear. He wasn't pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Simon wasn't an illusionist. Though Luke doesn't give us specific details, Simon practiced dark magic. That is, under demonic influence, he was able to perform miracles. Further, it appears that part of the reason Luke may have included Simon's story was because Simon was a man of no small reputation. It was fascinating to me that in the writings of Justin Martyr, the, the, the second century apologist, who was from the same region of Judea and Samaria as, as Simon, we find this reference in his writings. There was a Samaritan Simon who did mighty acts of magic so that he was considered a god. He was worshipped not only by almost all Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. Now, more towards the end of the second century, Irenaeus mentions in his writings that Simon was glorified by man as if he were a god, and that he was the author of all sorts of heresies. The language that Luke uses here in our passage seems very consistent with these descriptions. But the historical details make Simon's conversion just all the more intriguing. This scene sets up as a dramatic demonstration of the incomparable power of God. Now, there are times when the Lord allows evil to exercise limited power in a situation so that he can, in turn, demonstrate the absolute supremacy of his power over it. Think about the book of Exodus. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's, who's the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus 7 and 8 were at first able to replicate some of the miracles that Moses performed. But as the, as the miracles escalated in scope, they could not match God's indomitable power. Eventually, even the magicians acknowledged that the miracles that Moses was accomplishing were being done by the finger of God himself. In other words, the supremacy of God's power was displayed with increasing power until even mighty Pharaoh eventually bent his knee to the unyielding command of Almighty God. Now, Simon of Samaria appeared to have been worshipped as a god he enchanted the people. He performed great miracles. That is, until God's servant, Philip, a humble man who willingly served widows, until this man walked onto the scene. Now note in verse 9 of our passage that the ministry of Simon was to amaze the people through the power of evil. And declare that he was somebody great. In contrast, Philip's ministry was to heal others. To cast out evil. 
and proclaim the good news about the greatness of another, namely Jesus, the glorious Christ. Now, verse 10 is, it's just interesting wording. It's almost as if Simon is claiming the power of God as a title or almost as if others are speaking about him as if he is God incarnate, which is consistent with the other historical references that we heard. But this delusional fantasy of Simon was very short-lived. Because through the power of the true spirit of God that is called holy and through the message about God's only son, the one who actually is God incarnate, the people believed the gospel, verse 12, and even Simon himself believed, verse 13. Now, note in verse 12 that the power of the gospel is what changes the people. Yes, The miracles attested to the validity of the message. But they believed as Philip preached the good news. The good news about the kingdom of God and about the great name of Jesus. I love that in this scene, God defeats the display of dark magic that captured the attention of the people in an entire region. And he defeated this display, not by a surpassing display of obvious, miraculous power, but by the simplest and purest power of all, the invisible and absolutely sovereign power to change the human heart through the message of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for any and for all who believe, for the Jew first and for the Samaritan, and for the magician, and for any who believe in his name. If God can save a man who performed demonic magic, if God can save a man who received worship and praise from others as a God, if God can save a man that he thought he was the power that was called great, then friend, God can save you. Or, God can save someone you love. God can save someone you love from any power. And God can deliver you or that person out of every bondage, no matter how deep or dark or controlling or perverse or traumatizing or deceptive that darkness actually is. Nothing can withstand the power of the gospel. So don't give up praying for those you love who are lost or who are trapped or enslaved in bondage. For Simon was too at one time. Not to mention us. The power of the gospel has always been able to save people out of the darkest evil because the message of the gospel is more important than miracles and far more powerful than even the darkest magic or evil. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, 
they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The Scottish New Testament scholar Howard Marshall calls verse 16 of our passage perhaps the most extraordinary statement in Acts. The reason he said this was because of Peter's statement earlier in Acts 2.38. Remember that when those who heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when they were, when they were cut to the heart, they asked Peter and the apostles, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 8 and verse 16 is stunning because of what Peter says in Acts 2.38. Do you see the tension? In this instance, why does God delay the giving of the Spirit or for sure any demonstrable evidence of the Spirit, why does he delay it until the apostles arrive, especially in light of Peter's comment in 2.38? Does the free gift of the Spirit come to the believer at the time of their conversion? Or not? What's going on here? Now, th this is an issue that we're going to talk about from different angles as we walk through the book of Acts, but, but I want to spend some time on it this morning. So first, let me say that at River Oaks, we do not teach that a person is converted and then at some later time baptized with the Holy Spirit. We believe that the pattern that God has laid forth in Scripture is that the Spirit of God comes to live within the believer at the moment the person expresses faith in Jesus for salvation. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, we do, however, believe in subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit, which which can have the effect of increasing a person's love for God or deepening the faith of the believer as the Spirit fills you, of, of sanctifying the believer, of further empowering the gifting of the believer or even the receiving of a new spiritual gift. When I was praying before I began to speak, I was praying that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit despite the fact that many of us in here are already born-again believers in whom the Spirit of God dwells. But Paul exhorts already born-again believers in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. Further, Paul himself, after his conversion, received a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit on more than one occasion. When Ananias laid his hands upon Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 9 and verse 17 of Acts. 
Later in chapter 13 of Acts, Paul will be confronting another magician. And Luke describes the scene by saying, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So, there are multiple biblical examples of people often being filled with the Holy Spirit in subsequent ways after their initial conversion. However, I think what is happening here is that God delayed the receiving of the Holy Spirit, or at least the the falling of the Spirit in a demonstrable way, until Peter and John arrived on the scene. I don't think this is normative. I think this was a rare exception given two extraordinary circumstances, which answer the question, why in this particular case did God reserve the right to do it differently? First, the gospel has just crossed a new frontier. The words of Jesus in Acts 1.8 were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, filling of the Spirit, to those who already believed in Jesus, by the way. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Of course, this filling was special because this was Pentecost when the Spirit fell. In our passage, the gospel has now come to Samaria. In the book of Acts, Peter plays a major role in the gospel coming to the Jews remember his sermon at Pentecost, to the Samaritans, he plays an important role here in our passage, and he will play a major role in the gospel coming to the Gentiles when he shares the gospel with Cornelius and with his household after his dream in Acts 10. Now, in each of these situations, the presence of the Spirit witnessed by Peter as well as others validates, it validates that the gospel has been received by each group which Jesus had designated to receive it in his commission in Acts 1.8. What's interesting is that once these groups receive the gospel message, which is validated by the presence of the Holy Spirit, confirmed by the apostles, then the three frontiers from Acts 1.8 have been crossed and, and Peter largely disappears in the narrative of Acts. Another reason why the apostles were sent, I think, to the Samaritans was so that they could draw them in as an expression of unity for the church. These two people groups who had been at odds since the kingdoms split. And I love, I love, this is kind of anecdotal, but I love that John is one of the other people that goes with Peter. I love that he's the other apostle because you might remember back in Luke 9, Jesus, Jesus is sharing with a Samaritan village and they reject him. And the apostle John looks at Jesus and says, do you want me to call down fire and destroy them? And Luke rather subtly says, Jesus looked at him rebukes him, and they walked on to another village. But there is a sense in which through his prayer, John does call down the fire of the Holy Spirit upon them later in the most sanctified and glorious way. But the second reason I think that the Lord delayed the giving of the Spirit besides the validation of the apostles
is that there needed to be a clear distinction between the reception of the gospel message and the receiving of the spirit, which would likely be evidenced by demonstrations of power. But what do I mean by that, or, or, or why is that important? Why would it be important to ensure that the actual gospel message had been received by the Samaritans as opposed to just demonstrations of power by the Spirit? Remember that the whole region was under the false teaching of Simon because they were, they were absolutely mesmerized by his magical power. I think it was important to delay the demonstrative acts of the Spirit because it helped to solidify the Samaritans' need to receive the actual message of redemption, the need for their sins to be forgiven. I think it clarified that distinction. Just like the gospel isn't just a call from, from bad behavior to better behavior. Neither is the gospel merely a call away from a lesser power to a greater power, though it certainly is. Something much deeper and far more glorious is happening. The Samaritans were held captive by magic, evil, and they needed to be set free from the power of sin so that they could walk by faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit as they learned to please and honor the Father. And they were. Because the message of the gospel is more important than miracles and the message of the gospel is more powerful than magic. Now, this scene in 18 through 24 would be almost comical if it weren't so disturbing. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This scene is disturbing. It's sobering because of Peter's rebuke. And it's also encouraging at the same time. Though it's not 100% clear if Simon was genuinely converted or not, I don't see any reason to doubt the plain statement in verse 13 that even Simon himself believed. That is, he believed the good news of the kingdom and of the name of Jesus Christ. This scene is disturbing because Simon essentially tries to buy the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. <laughs> Bad move, dude. This scene is sobering because in typical Peter fashion, he goes directly at Simon. And with haunting words reminiscent of the words he spoke to Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Your heart is not right before God. If Simon is converted here, and I don't see any reason why he couldn't be, though the language at the end of the passage is concerning, we have to remember who this guy was. 
this guy was a magician who captivated an entire region holding them spellbound. He was extraordinarily famous and extraordinarily wealthy. And so some of his first few steps out of the gate as a believer are a little bit clumsy, right? Imagine a mafia hitman being converted. And then going out to share the gospel with his friends, he immediately calls his friends and is like, hey, you got to believe in Jesus. Don't make me come over there, right? I mean, you're thinking that there's going to be some awkwardness and he's going to need some work because he's got to depend upon the power of God in order to transform another person. Further, it's a head shaker because we, we would never be so crass as to think that we could buy the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could leverage God's power to benefit ourselves. Or would we? Probably more subtly than trying to buy it, but this would be a good thing to talk about as families this week over lunch or in growth group, in what ways do we try to leverage the power of God for our own benefit? So let's not be too hard on Simon. He looks around and he sees the Holy Spirit being poured out through the apostles. He's like, hey, can I get some of that? I want to be able to do that. And I've got gifting in this area. You want me on your team here. He, just, he doesn't get it. He's not thinking clearly, but you could see why the temptation would be there. But the piece that's encouraging about this section is that the hope of the gospel is, is subtly embedded in what's happening. This scene is encouraging because it reminds us that there is no amount of money or influence or effort that could ever purchase the salvation or the presence of the spirit of, that God offers to believers only through union with his son. No effort, no amount of money, no influence can do it. The gospel is not a respecter of persons. The gospel shows no partiality to anyone's sin or anyone's influence. God is not impressed. But salvation is a free gift. The spirit of God is a free gift. The faith by which we trust in Christ is a free gift. Nothing, absolutely nothing could cause God to bestow these gifts apart from his good and gracious will. Think about how freeing and, and confidence instilling that is. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be tricked. God cannot nor will not be coerced. God cannot be bought with money or with the spiritual currency of our so-called good works. God's not an accountant. Adding up assets, subtracting out the debits, and looking at people and going, eh, you made some effort. I'll grant salvation to you. That is, that is not how the gospel works. If we think that we have grossly overestimated our ability to be righteous at all. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a believer because God desired to save your soul. 
because he loves you and because he desired to save you. And if he desired to save you, he desires to save you. And he will always desire to save you because he doesn't change his mind. And he is faithful. He is faithful to his promise to complete the work he started in you. Look, if you're not a believer in Jesus, call out to him for mercy. Ask him to forgive your sin. Or if you're, if you're a doubting, fragile believer in Jesus, you're concerned about your salvation and, and whether or not you are genuinely converted. Cry out to God and ask him to give you the assurance of your salvation through the presence of the Holy Spirit because of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to save your soul. God will because God delights to save sinners to the praise of his glorious grace. There's only one reason that sinners are saved and that's because God wants to save them. He owes no one anything. Now, as the apostles returned to Jerusalem, they preached the gospel to other Samaritan villages. Uh, it's for 21st century Americans, we're like, oh, great. They're taking advantage of the opportunity as they head back to Jerusalem. But there is so much to rejoice in, in that short sentence. How amazing is it that the apostles preached the gospel to the Samaritans and how incredible is it that the Samaritans have become believers in Jesus as Messiah. The hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans went all the way back to the, to the separation of the kingdoms. Two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, remained loyal to Jerusalem. The other 10 northern tribes defected from Israel and they made their capital Samaria. The hostility got worse from there. Recall the fascinating discussion between Jesus and the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. She she's, says to him, why, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? And the implication in the context is, you're a rabbi, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are we talking? Why are you asking me for anything? They have a discussion about the right place to worship and how worship happens. Jesus says he can give her living water. And she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? How can you say you can give us living water? Oh, the answer to that question is, is so immense. But Jesus goes on to say, at some point we will come together and we will worship in spirit and in truth. And what's happening in this scene is what Jesus was referring to. The hostility was so bad that at one point in Jesus' teaching ministry, he offends all of the Jews around him because he tells a parable about a good Samaritan. And they're utterly stunned. It was offensive because it was absolutely unthinkable to them. It was unthinkable until the cross of Christ. 
The cross first absorbed our offense to God so that in turn our offenses with one another could be reconciled. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were foreigners, akin to Gentiles. But God reconciled them both to one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, Ephesians 2, 16. The gospel is the only power, good enough or strong enough, to offer the world hope from its religious and its ethnic divisions. Philosophies like critical race theory are not just deficient in explaining the dynamics at work and the complexity of human relationship. They offer zero hope because there is no path toward reconciliation. They offer zero hope for a better humanity and there is no way forward to be delivered out of the depravity of the human heart for every person regardless of skin color. But the cross of Christ does. Praise God for reconciling the world to himself and praise God for making a way for others to be reconciled to one another through the cross. Jesus paid all of our debts to God. Therefore, we can forgive any real or perceived debt we hold against one another. Jesus paid it all. And he paid it all for any person, regardless of ethnicity, so that they might come to know him as Lord and as God. The gospel is so powerful. It had the power to save a magician under demonic influence who elevated his own greatness and who even tried to buy the power or the person of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel is so powerful that it has the power to save the likes of you and of me. Because unlike Simon, our sins aren't chronicled in the eternal word of God, and yet our daily sins are a reminder that more than anything in the world, we need Jesus. Praise God for the good news of the gospel. It is the only hope we have. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your supremacy over all created beings. Thank you that you are Lord over heaven and of earth. Thank you that no power can assault your throne and that no power can challenge you for authority. You are undefeated by every challenger, and you will remain undefeated forever. Lord, we praise you that despite your greatness, you saw fit to graciously offer your son to sinners so that we might come into relationship with you. Lord, this morning we praise you for your glorious grace. We praise you that Jesus paid our debt 
so that we might have our sins forgiven, so that your spirit might come to live within us and that we might live with you forever. To that end, Lord, I pray that you would fill us, fill us with your spirit now, so that we might respond in worship in a manner that is pleasing and honor, honoring to you as we trust in Jesus. And we ask these things in his name, amen.